Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we're going to be talking to Belinda, who is the very much one of the daughters of Artie Tanya Day, um, indeed one of the loved ones um, that she's been surrounded by during this very gruelling inquest um, that has been that has been happening. Tanya Day actually died um, in a police cell, and. She died of a brain hemorrhage, and I wanted to start off with a quote from a statement of the Day family as part of the introduction, and it says, In the last 30 years, hundreds of Aboriginal people, like our mum, have died at the hands of the police, yet no police officer has ever been held criminally responsible. And I just wanted to go on to say that Tanya died in hospital on the 22nd of December 2017 of a brain hemorrhage sustained when she fell and hit her head in the cells of Castle Main Police Station 70 days earlier. She was in the cells because she had been arrested for public drunkenness after being removed from police from police um, from a, CAS, a V-line train from Bendigo to Melbourne. And just a, uh, a little bit of a belated warning that there will be audio images of people that have died, Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal people, in this broadcast. So we're going to be speaking to Belinda about that. The Do and Time show has covered this inquest quite extensively um, over the last uh, couple of years or so, and we'll be speaking to Belinda. We actually had April on the show, uh, I'd say, a couple of months ago now, when there was a live stream in April um, was we speaking to Belinda shortly, not only about the background to the inquest, but also looking at the recommendations that the coroner actually put forward. The one of the main things that we'll be speaking with Belinda about is looking at the fact that police have not been prosecuted. Police have definitely um, not been criminally held to account um, in regards to what happens with what happened with Arnie Tanya. So this show is really about honouring um, Tanya, but also honouring as well all deaths in custody, and mainly Aboriginal deaths in custody. So Tanya Day was referred; had the, the case was referred to the department, the department, sorry, 
of public prosecutions to determine whether criminal negligence has occurred. And indeed, um, the police haven't been held responsible for that. After Belinda, we'll be speaking with Latoya Rule, and she is the sister of Wayne Feller Morrison, and we'll be speaking to her about an update that has happened with another inquest. As the gruelling two-month inquest continues, the family of Aboriginal man Wayne Feller Morrison wants someone to be held accountable for his death. Okay, so without any further ado, we're going to be speaking now with Belinda. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical Voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And this is, I'm hoping that I'm speaking with Belinda. Hello, Belinda. Hi, Marissa. It's lovely to have you. So just to remind listeners, first of all, that we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's a lot of technical things that are happening with all the radio stations, I think. So, Belinda, sorry for any technical difficulties in advance, given that I'm remotely producing the show from home. We'll see what we can do. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Okay, so, Belinda, let's start off just a little bit, talking a little bit about what's, what's happened with your mum, and I believe that Caitlin English, the coroner, investigating Tanya's death in custody, and Mm -hmm. she has referred the case to the Department of Public Prosecutions to determine whether criminal negligence has occurred. Can you talk about that? And also just maybe just talk a little bit about your mum. She was a proud Yorta Yorta woman, wasn't she? She was. She was very proud of her her culture and her heritage. and unfortunately, that's something that um, that she was targeted for. So it's really unfortunate that that it turned out the way that it did. So Mum was, as you mentioned, was travelling on a um, V-line bus from Echuca to Melbourne, um, and was, I guess, identified as an unruly passenger um, by a V-line employee. Um, and police were called, and she was removed, and subsequently arrested for public intoxication. Um, we were told that she had to be held in the cell for at least a minimum of four hours. Um, there is no written rule for that. That's just something that we were verbally told and multiple police officers told us that. So, um, you know, they assured us that they were caring for her and looking after her well-being. Um, when it was close to the four hours and, and Warren was our brother, mum's son was on his way to, to collect her, um, we made some contact with the police and they advised that the ambulance had, had arrived because mum was um, a bit sleepy, et cetera, very downplayed, not really giving us much information about what condition mum was in. Or um, So by the time Warren got there, mum had already been transferred to Bendigo. Um, we all, um, you know, I, I guess 
made our way to Bendigo to see Mum um, and were devastated when we walked in and saw her on again with, you know, breathing apparatus and massive bruise on her forehead. And um, from there, airlifted to, to Melbourne to St Vincent's. Um, and unfortunately, 17 days later, we lost Mum um, due to the injuries that she sustained while she was in um, police custody, and that's from multiple falls um, against the concrete wall. Um, and like you said, you know, the the coroner did, um, and we thank the coroner for all the the listening um, that she did to of us as a family, and you know, understanding how we were feeling, and and really her being um, open to what we were saying. So she really took the time to, to listen to us as a family, and ultimately she made a decision that she thought that a um, an offence may have occurred. So a referral was made to the Department of Public Prosecutions for the two police officers. Um, to determine whether a criminal offence had occurred. So we got advice last week. Um, the DPP has reviewed um, that referral and they have decided not to proceed with charges. That is indeed unfortunate, Belinda. Yeah, it's devastating for us as a family. Like, I mean, you always hope that you're going to be able to get justice and you, you hope that the system will sort of wake up to itself and, and see you know, mum's story for what it is and, and see the truth behind what happened and what didn't happen. And unfortunately, it's just as many before us, as many families had to go through with looking for justice and um, it just seems that you, you get to onto the doorstep and you get knocked back. And, you know, so us as a family, we're just trying to comprehend what that means because ultimately that's what we want. We want someone to be held accountable, um, you know, for, for what happened to mum because it should never have happened. And if we can't look back and really grasp what happened and learn from it, then how are we going to make positive change? Despite the coroner recommending that a falls risk assessment be placed in the Victoria Police Manual Guidelines for holding people in custody and that police mm -hmm. training be updated with reference to the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody and that both the Victoria Police and V-Line training manuals be subject to an independent human rights review... Yeah. Would it be fair to say that systemic racism played a part in this whole scenario? Absolutely. We we have no doubt as a family that mum was targeted for, for being an Aboriginal woman. Um, and I think that's very clear in terms of an incident happened earlier in the... Um, I think it was after mum was taken into custody where they actually went and picked up a non-Aboriginal woman who was intoxicated at a pub and drove her to... Um, a residence in Castlemaine and dropped her off and made sure that she was safe and sound. Yet they pulled mum off the train when she was not disturbing or hurting or being aggressive to anybody, was in no way unruly um, and decided that a cell was the safest place for her to be. And the woman was white that, that went, came off the train? Yes, as far as we know. Oh, yes, this was talked about at the inquest, wasn't it? Absolutely, it was referenced During the course the of the inquest. Yes, yep. And there's been, yeah, yeah a non-Aboriginal woman. And, the, you know, like the crime of public drunkenness, the, the, the sorry, what I want to say here, Belinda, just to let listeners mm -hmm. know all this and to actually highlight some of the inconsistencies here, is that the coroner in 2018, she said that there should be a recommendation um, that the crime of public drunkenness be abolished in Victoria. 
And the Andrews government has already agreed to that, hasn't he? But it still ch- doesn't change the fact that this was racism. That's right. And it's all good and well to foreshadow a recommendation and the government to make commitments to that. But that hasn't been implemented. That law's still there. That law is still targeting Aboriginal people. And it's something that, you know, unfortunately, if we, if we let that go, another family's going to have to go through what we've gone through. And that's just not good enough. No. It certainly isn't. And, you know, there are lots of testimonies, even from the medical profession, during the course of all these, these inquests, that your mum needed to have been checked on and that she was allegedly bleeding from the brain while she was in the cells and it wasn't attended to. That's right. And and that's what happens when you don't fulfil your duties to, to look after someone when they're in your care. And that's why we, we know that there was negligence there because their own policies and procedures tell them what they should be doing and they weren't adhered to. So how is that not negligence? Exactly. And it's... <laughs> It's interesting how some of the comments that were made by the police, in particular, mm. I believe the the policewoman that was overseeing the case, I think it might have been Sergeant Neal, where Correct. it was yep. it it was stated that it, look, all drunks act this way, and and all drunks <laughs> like to sleep on the fl- on the floor, you know. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All drunks want to be, you know, not be able to move on the floor. Like, I mean, had they taken any time? to assess mum prior to how she, um, you know, deteriorated, it would be been very clear. Like, I mean, we could see it. As devastating as that footage is, um, you can see the deterioration. And, you know, not every drunk's like that. Not every drunk has hit their head multiple times and is suffering a brain bleed, you know, and it's really disappointing. As, like, you talk about, you know, even the police officers, Part of their, um, I guess, evidence was that they were asked, you know, would you do anything differently knowing that someone had passed? And they all said no. They'd happily do exactly the same thing, have the same outcome. And to me, that is absolutely disgusting. It is. It is. I mean, why was your mum taken off the train to start with? And why was Mm. she lodged in a cell? because they didn't follow their own policies and procedures. Because, you know, firstly, it starts with V-Line. So the conductor, Sean Irvine, got the ball rolling. He he had never kicked anyone off the train before. He'd come across aggressive, unruly, actually unruly people and had never decided to call the police and have them removed. But within a minute of meeting Mum, identified her as Aboriginal and unruly and had the police call to have her removed and used the words, I want her off my train. And the, the sad thing is that people can't sit, sit in a courtroom or sit in a coroner's court and own their own behaviours and how they acted on that day because when he got there, he tried to deny everything. He, In his report, he identified Mum as Aboriginal. There was no doubt about that. But when he was asked about, how did you know that Tanya was Aboriginal? And he's like, I didn't. She could have been Caucasian. I'm oh. not sure. I can't remember. Like, you can, Mum's got clearly dark brown skin. She's clearly Aboriginal. And, you know, he backtracked and didn't tell the truth. And that's what we've been wanting so desperately through this process is for the truth to be told about what happened, what should have happened, what didn't happen, and some accountability. 
There shouldn't be too much to her act for. Definitely there needs to be accountability and, and about the fact that, you know, the police that are actually meant to be looking after your mum kept saying again and again they, they wanted to respect her privacy, that they wanted to... <laughs> I mean, that that's... it's This is not a... Um, a welfare centre, <laughs> you know? Yep. No, well, they have a it's duty a, of care. And let's it's be duty honest, of care. miserably. Failed miserably. And indeed, Recommendation 12 of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody stipulates that it's about considering the quality of care and treatment of, of, um, of people in, in prison. Yeah. And indeed in custody. You know, that's, a, that's the problem is there's so many recommendations that haven't been implemented. And, you know, Victoria is, is way behind the eight ball in terms of abolishing, um, you know, public intoxication as a crime. And, you know, it's really good that they've committed to that. But, you know, it's a little bit too late. But it's all right to have that commitment. But we want to see the action, you know. Words are only words. We, we need right. action. We need it implemented. We need that law gone, we need a public health response and we need to be looking after people that are intoxicated in public and not by putting them in a prison cell. Belinda, are you okay? Can I proceed? Is this too much for you? No, no, no. Okay. Now, I believe that you were the one that identified your mum's body. Well, so when mum was... In um, Castle Maine, she was transferred to Bendigo Hospital. So Warren was the first one to attend Bendigo Hospital. Yep. Um, and subsequently, myself and April um, and Mum's brother attended. Um, but we were with Mum when she passed in Melbourne. Okay. Yep. And because, it, is it true that... Because I just wanted to just give, explore with you very briefly some of the medical findings. So I believe an autopsy yep. was conducted. Yes, yeah, there was no there was no choice. Given that it was um, a reportable death, then it was um, mandatory for that to happen. Yeah, and I just want to want to actually say here to listeners and correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, drawing upon the information that I heard at the inquest and that indeed was was published publicly, so there were findings underlying the brain pathology that caused the brain hemorrhage, and there was cerebral hemorrhage hematoma in the temporal lobe and she, your mum wouldn't have survived. She, she would have had or she could have had dysphasia, total destruction of the temporal lobe, lobe mm. and she would have been um, paralysed and disabled, correct? Correct. She wouldn't yeah. have been able to recover. So the best no. way really for her to not have died or was to have not been placed in the cell. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Had, had that... The ball not got started rolling at V-line and she'd not gone down that path, um, you know, and she'd be a, a very healthy person walking this earth today. But unfortunately, um, you know, we're, we're still in the world where racism reigns and, and this, is, this is where we are. So in regards to the outcome that you would have sought, that you, um, speaking on behalf of your family... What is it that you would have liked for for the police? Because we all know that it's about police investigating police. Yeah. There's no independent yeah. investigation here. No, and so 
we've been frustrated from the very beginning um, in understanding the coronial process and what what it means and um, and the, in the independent investigation. And we really struggled with understanding how is it independent when you've got a Victoria Police member investigating their own. Um, and we really struggled with that. And they're like, no, 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 it is independent. But, you know, I think it's clear that it wasn't. And I think part of the issue with the DPP and their decision is that they've made their decision on evidence and a flawed investigation. So, you know, they can only go by what they've been handed um, and that goes back to the root of the problem. Police should not be investigating police. Um, and we need that independence. So does there need to be another body? Does there... I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but clearly um, the system that currently in place is is not working and that's even shown by um, the recommendation from the coroner herself. Okay, tell me about that recommendation. Which one was it? She... I think she says here that Caitlin English believes that an indictable offence may have been committed in connection to Miss Day's death. It's more around Reclamation 2, I think it is. The Victorian government yes. legislate that the coroner directs the coronial investigation rather than relying on the current convention with Victoria Police. Yes. So that that's having that independence, because currently, like, how bizarre it is that she had a... An investigator that was that she was, that she was supposed to be directing as part of an independent investigation that had their own legal counsel that she couldn't yes. talk to them without the legal counsel. Like that's bizarre to me, but because it yes. is a coronial uh, responsibility, but the police had their own representation, which made it a really strange, I guess, way of working. The police had their own representation at the inquest. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, um, like, Neil, Walters um, and the others um, yeah. had representation, but mm. the, the police investigator himself had his own representation as well. That's right. Yes. That is bizarre. That is bizarre, that the coroner cannot talk to her own investigator without legal counsel being present. So, hence yeah. that, that recommendation. So, clearly, the, the coroner's court can see that there's issues here. So let's hope that um, something is done to address that. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. And that's a really good point that you've raised, Belinda, actually, that there seems to be some inconsistency here, that the system is, is quite flawed and that the coroner certainly had quite a few limitations. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, had we had a different coroner, I suspect that we probably would have got the run-of-the-mill inquest and nothing shocking or nothing groundbreaking would have happened. I think that we were fortunate that we had Coroner English. Yep. Um, and like I said, she she took the time to sort of try and understand that for the family. And I think she tried to listen for mum's voice and yes. and to understand the experience. And, you know, I think that is shown through some of the, the recommendations. I mean, like we mentioned before, we have no doubt that systemic racism played a role in the treatment that Victoria Police gave Mum. Um, yeah. Coroner English stopped short of confirming that as part of her, her findings, um, but did indicate that Sean Irvine from V-Line certainly was impacted by, um, you know, racial bias. Um, but we believe that she could have came out and said that for, about Victoria Police as well, given, you know, we mentioned earlier the how they dealt with a non-Aboriginal woman and then how they dealt with mum 
um, I think it's pretty clear. Um, but yes, now we're fortunate enough to have current English there, and I, I think the recommendations we've made um, will certainly help the process for. Let's hope you know there's not too many more going forward. But for those that unfortunately have to come after us and go through that horrendous coronial process. It is indeed horrendous, and 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 I I actually commend you and your family just on how in depth your statements have been for the media. And there's actually something here, a part of your statement that I actually quickly like to read out, which I think will really sum everything up. Where you you all say there has never been any doubt in our mind that Victoria Police are responsible for our mum's death. The coroner found that the police should have sought medical care rather than taking to her taking her to a cell. And you say the coroner found that once mum was in the cell, the police failed to properly check on her, treated with her, with complacency, and breached her human rights to humane treatment and dignity. Yeah, and it's true. It is true. I mean, you know, you you were there part, you know, um, throughout yes. the coronial process, and I was. You know, I was you, there, you, you all right? The and footage. It, it, yeah, the footage is. I mean, that oh, terrific. Again, but to, to sitting there and listening to statements and evidence and and piecing it all together, like it, it's very clear. And um, like I said, you know, in terms of the the prosecution, we're just devastated that that's the decision and. You know, we just want some transparency about, like, how is that decision made? What what have you considered? We certainly weren't consulted as a family. Um, yep. So, yeah. The system needed to have protected her. Well, that's, you know, and there's, I guess there's people in positions of power that that have this trust generally of most um, most community members, and I think that, you know, when you hear from a police officer that, you know, she's she's okay, she's fine and we're looking after her and we'll help her with this and that, but you, you sort of, you fall into that authority figure and, okay, yes, they're doing the right thing and, you know, well, we can't do anything for four hours, so yes, this is where she needs to be and we can't do anything about that. But, you know, when you, when you go from the conversation that I had with Sergeant Neal um, about the ambulance being there and um, that, no, you know, mum's fine, she's breathing, her her blood pressure's fine, you know, no mention of a massive bruise to her forehead, no mention of her, you know, sort of basically being unconscious and unresponsive, um, not a phone call back to say that, look, we've had to transfer her to hospital. It was all of us ringing and finding out what was going on because they didn't have the guts to bring us and tell us what was going on with mum. And they downplayed it. And, you know, how traumatising for her children to get to the hospital thinking that she's gone there because she's too intoxicated and maybe needs some fluids to, to feel better and, and that we can pick her up and then take her home. To walk in there and she's unconscious, a massive bruise on her head and needs assistance breathing. It's absolutely horrible. Yeah, like you can't... How can you downplay that and and just let us walk in and just experience that firsthand, thinking that everything is okay? Correct. It's so deplorable and and, and really the, the recommendations, not only have the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, not only have they been 
disrespected, if you like, and not even mm. not even um, hasn't even been, been complied with. But you've also also the Charter of Human Rights, Belinda. That's right. Yeah, and we were very fortunate that to have. You know, we're very fortunate to have a very good legal team and, yes, we're with the Human Rights Law Centre now, but prior to that we had the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and we've had the Commission, the, the Human Rights Commission, come and talk at the inquest. You, you were there, you heard what they had to say and, yep. and it's very clear, it's very clear that Mum's human rights were breached. You know, I was so determined to go to that inquest. I, I actually um, got up early and caught a cab every day there. I was very determined to sit through it all. It was very difficult sometimes. Yes. Yeah. But this inquest, I think, was quite historic and it was very comprehensive. There, there's, It's very good that you had a good legal team. Belinda, yeah, so basically this show is really a dedication to your mum but also to all Aboriginal deaths in custody and I really wanted to invite you onto the show to honour your mum and... Um, and, and to actually get her voice heard. Is there, are there yes, any final yeah, questions yeah. you want to, to make? Any comments, sorry? No comments. I mean, I just I just want Mum to be remembered as a person, not as a statistic. Like, you know, we can talk Correct. about there's been over 400 deaths, but, you know, yep. Annie Louise Day was a loving mother, grandmother, sister, auntie, and um, very much an advocate for the Aboriginal community. And, um, you know, I think we're all... A little bit lost without her, but you know we use her strength and her resilience that she had through her life to, to keep moving on and to keep fighting for justice. So just you know, as we keep saying, that just remember her as a person um, and not a statistic. That's exactly right, and and let's let's fight on and may her death not be in vain. That's right. Belinda, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was great to have you, and I hope we can have you back at some time. And I'm hoping that in the end, those police are held to account. Yes, well, that, that's that's the goal. We'll keep fighting. So hopefully, I can come back on the show and, and we can talk about them um, being I'd charged. I'd love you to do That'd that. Be great. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks, Marissa. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.31. And pretty soon we're going to be speaking with Latoya Rule, sister of Wayne Fella Morrison. And she's becoming quite a regular guest on this show. And I'm hoping one day we'll be able to have good news. But we're going to be speaking pretty soon about her brother. And, and I believe that 
there was someone who was forced to apologise to the family. Hello, Latoya, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Thank you again for having me. It's lovely to have you back. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we're in the, all in the middle of a pandemic at the moment, stage four restrictions in Victoria, but I yeah. believe Adelaide's got different a different way. Yeah, we do. Um, solidarity to everybody who's experiencing that at the moment, obviously. Um, definitely. Um, yeah. Just, I can't fathom what it is to still be in lockdown in many ways, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. Because in Adelaide, we, yeah, we're kind of back to normal in many ways. We have, I think... 50 people allowed in public gatherings. Oh, okay. Um, yep. Yeah. So Sounds I don't like even stage know two. Yeah. Yeah. Around there. Um, we have to keep going. Just, we do. Yeah. Um, but I see so many great efforts happening there as well, and as well as solidarity to everybody in those towers. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. We, we all here were just um, really distraught and really feeling like we couldn't do anything much except obviously send money and, you know, spread the word. But we just wish that we were able to be there physically as well during that time because that's just not okay. No, it certainly um, wasn't okay. And and our show has actually done quite a lot of coverage about that, where there was a big lockdown with all the towers and people. It was all people from non-English speaking backgrounds and... Uh, it, the 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 operation was all police oriented, and it was it was just really hard. It was a very hard lockdown. It wasn't organised properly. It shouldn't have been done. No, and racially motivated. Yes, um, you know, obviously. So, yeah, but no, good to speak to you. I'm glad we're here today to do this. Absolutely. So, Latoya, on the 26th of September, just to refresh the memories of listeners, 26 yeah. September 2016, your brother who was 29 years old, um, and he died um, in the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of an update on his on his um, on what what's been happening lately with the inquest, and yep. and perhaps just talk about what land you the whole family's from. Yep. Um, so essentially, um, we. Yeah, I guess it's kind of where to start. So much is always happening every single month. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so, yeah, he passed away in um, the Royal Adelaide Hospital, Wayne Feller Morrison, after allegedly, um, you know, having to be restrained after an alleged incident in Yatla Prison, Yatla Labor Prison here in South Australia on Ghana land. Um, and he is a father, a fisherman, an artist. Um, I still haven't seen my niece for these almost past four years, neither has the rest of my family, and that's been really hard for yep. us. And that's one of those kind of areas that people don't think about, about how this stuff separates families, how it, um, you know, dictates a lot of our behaviours and movements going forward as well, and how much our lives change. And so we've been in the inquest now for, like I said, almost four years, on the 26th of September. This year it will be four years. But we've just been told that our inquest won't resume. So we've been on a hold from our inquest since last year. Um, I forget which month, but for a very long time. 
Um, we yes. won't be going back until next year now. Next we were supposed year? to be going, yeah, till mid Why next year, actually. Uh, well, many reasons. Some, I guess I can't say at this stage because there's further directions here in Sydney yes, House, so we can't confirm exactly the dates for you or the month, but um, 2021 is what we're looking at at the moment due to COVID, but also just the publicity around our case has been cited as one of the reasons why we need more space. And due to COVID, um, we haven't been able to do that through restrictions and, you know, people who are wanting to sit in court. Um, already it's been insinuated that we shouldn't be in the room at all with corrections officers who are trying to avoid giving evidence anyway. Um, and considering that corrections and their side, so the defence for the you know the corrections officers, um, the nurse, the health service, all of those kinds of state players, there's about 30 lawyers on their side at the moment, plus to support people for every single correctional officer who has to give evidence. Um, and we have about two to four lawyers at any time. And they have three QCs on their legal team as well, and we don't have any. Um, you know, that's kind of where we're at. So it's not looking great. The state's poured hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions already, into updating their systems, the reporting that's already happened, um, you know, 2017. I'm sorry I'm jumping all over the place, but that's pretty much no, no, it for this is good. why yep. we're going over till next year. Um, but since 2017, we've had a parliamentary inquiry into the administration of South Australian prisons that happened with a select committee. That's online if people want to look at that through the SA Parliament um, committee reports. Uh, Wayne's case was one of five to go through as particular cases to be focused on. Um, there was a few recommendations out of that. My family and myself made, um, um, what are they called, like reports and comments and our own submissions to that inquiry. From that, Ombudsman Wayne Lyons of South Australia, so the state ombudsman, chose to pick up Wayne's case himself and started an inquiry and investigation in 2017. And just um, last week, just passed, we received his report. So it's very timely that you called. <laughs> um, we've received okay, so the report. state ombudsman yeah. wrote a report, did he? He did, 110 pages long. Wow, um, and when did that report seven... come out, Latoya? Just last week on Wednesday. Sorry, oh, good. Thursday. It was Thursday. Lovely. Yep. Um, and I can send you that one, but again, that's online under the um, SA Ombudsman's reports. It's the first mm. latest one. Um, and that's, yeah, that was from his own kind of interest in the case. So he he wasn't forced to do this as any kind of part of his reporting. He chose to pick it up due to the nature of the kind of case and how... I'd really um, like to um, set up another time with you in the next couple of weeks to discuss that report, that would be okay. very timely. Yeah, so yeah. The, um, I, the, sorry? Yeah, yeah, I can just... I've got the report in front of me, but I Lovely. can quickly yep. sum it up for people if they want and we can go into that would it be great. in more detail at another time. Yep. So essentially there were 17 recommendations to come from the report. It's 110 pages. Some of the main things that the... Um, one of the main things that came from the report was the failure to raise a knock 
what we call a notification of concern around my brother being a possible at-risk prisoner during on admission, um, given his history and background and our family history. Um, so he should have been treated with more care. Um, they didn't maintain appropriate records in accordance to the state acts. Um, and then also it looked at the way our family were treated. Remember I was telling you how, you know, we were being turned away. We were being told that Wayne wasn't um, at the hospital and that they'd, you know, given him another name. So we, that was on purpose, we found out through oh. this report. Um, yeah, to essentially protect us from getting to our own brother, which is obviously disgusting. So coming from these findings, the, the ombudsman actually said and recommended that the state, David Brown, who's the head of corrections, um, and I guess corrections as a whole, apologised to us. And he made that finding four times, that recommendation four times, sorry. So, yeah, we've since received an apology letter from the state. Um, it's less than adequate. It's actually kind of a kick in the face, if I'm honest. And uh -huh. we're demanding that um, he actually meet us face-to-face -face here in South Australia and give us his formal apology kind of more publicly to our family and to our community. And we'll keep demanding that as well throughout the inquest um, moving forward because, yeah, they need to humanise us. Um, you know, they need to ensure that they're accountable and that they're not saying that they stand by their actions, essentially, that they're actually sorry, you know, um, and show us Absolutely. that they want to see us enough and, you know, to humanise our grief and trauma for my family. So, yeah, quite a bit's happened, and I would love to go through the report a bit more oh. thoroughly with you at another time, for sure. Um, one Absolutely. of the good things that he did do um, was, you know, speak to the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody from 91, and he he done that really thoroughly and, you know, definitely advocated for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and families who have passed in prisons and our families doing the work now, and that was something I was really proud of him of doing. Um, so, yeah. I'm okay half-half with the report, <laughs> but we'll talk yeah. more about that another time. No, that, but that's good that he... Because it is important for listeners to know about the Ombudsman. I mean, obviously the Ombudsman can't really do too much, but at least he was, they, you know, the Ombudsman was able to report the shortcomings of the correctional exactly. system. Yeah, absolutely. And look at maybe some of the details that the coroner won't get to look at. You know, while it's our evidence about how we were treated and the suspicion that grew because of that and the hiding and the, you know, not sharing of information, um, the way that corrections were actually kept out of the prison when they went to investigate. Sorry, the investigators were kept out of the prison um, when they actually tried to start their investigation and make it a crime scene. You know, there's certain things that the coroners just can't look at, um, but that are just as important as an overall picture of the case and about the suspicion of what happened. So, yeah, we're really grateful that it did happen. Um, but, you know, you can't always get exactly what you want when it's the state and we can't put our trust in the state to give us justice because I don't think that the state is just. Um, right. And I don't think that that's where justice lies. So we take everything with a grain of salt, hey? Yeah, absolutely. But I think what's, what's important to note here even though the apology is inadequate, is that South Australia 
was ordered to apologise to the family, like to, you, to your family, after the report of the state ombudsman, which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in terms of apologies, again, it's accountability. And so yes. what I've said as part of my statement essentially is that in many ways this offers a type of accountability mechanism. We're not holding them accountable to the degree that we need by any means, but essentially we may never get any corrections officers in future apologising to us. We may never get statements, you know, that actually feel for what we've been through. We, moving forward, in many ways, we're invisibilised in the process and different people have spoken about that, kind of what happens during the coroner's court and how, including myself and my own research about how the coroner, the lawyers, all these state players and agencies they get the power to construct who we are at that time. So the fact that somebody like David Brown, the head of corrections, has to come to us and apologise, you know, that's a really big deal in terms of acknowledging our existence, acknowledging that we have power now, that we have a stance and that we are actually worth something, that our lives do matter in some way. I'm not saying that that's what corrections are saying because they don't agree, but, you know, there's, there's movement here. And it's important that we're capturing it. Indeed it is. And, and you know, the, the thing that really is deplorable here, LaToya, is that your brother died after being restrained by 14 guards. 14 guards. Yeah. Well, actually, really? in all honesty, there's about 19 plaintiffs who were the ones taking the coroner to court trying to overthrow the coroner, which people can listen to in our previous conversations. You know, that's 19, 18 corrections plus a nurse um, who, in my opinion, acted unlawfully and against their own practices and policies um, in many ways, which is constantly being shown by their statements already saying, you know, we didn't even know that existed or we didn't even know that that was our duty. You know, that's a lot of people who are untrained. That's a lot of people who are untrained still right now in the prisons because nobody's lost their jobs, um, who are looking after many, many prisoners in South Australia. We were the third highest incarcerator in the last 10 years of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so, you know, the fact is, is that those people right now are untrained you know, largely don't care about black lives, let alone other people's lives. In the state of COVID-19, we've seen what's happening in Brisbane, in Melbourne, in Sydney, um, in the prisons. You know, those people are right now. So what does happen in our case right now does affect those people looking after people in prison. Um, And that makes me feel a little bit better. But obviously, there's always going to be a bit of me that's really angry and really upset. Um, I just don't always get the opportunity to show that. I mean, George Floyd passed. Many other Aboriginal people have passed in the same way as George Floyd. And just actually last week, another African-American name, sorry, American person, I can't name him at the moment, but he passed wearing a spit hood in exactly the same way as Wayne. Um, So the fact is that, again, this isn't a um, located issue. This is a global issue. And there's so many parts of our case that overlap constantly, just like David Dungay's with George Floyd. 
death, you know, and murder. And so while I can't say that my brother was murdered, I'm sure that other people can piece together their own kind of pictures of what's happening at the moment. Absolutely. And and it's true, there's so many parallels, like, all over the world. I mean, you know, like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Like, there's... <laughs> Sorry, I mean, I'm, I'm not... I'm, it's just crazy. Yeah. You know? Fithood and restraint asphyxiation is one of the main causes of death of um, people in prisons. And essentially, continually, they're told that... We're told as family members in public that, you know, they brought it upon themselves. We're charging people guilty after death. People are being given, you know, death sentences after their death. That's how they're being seen. Um, and in many ways, you know, we can go into it. Or scholars who are not me, <laughs> many bigger people who are like, you know, the Gary Foley's of the world and just incredible Aboriginal people and historians and academics, you know, they speak to these issues really thoroughly. Um, so do you, though, Latoya. You're an academic. I'm a baby academic, but they, you know, they speak to these issues in terms of what I've learned from them is like, you know, incarcerating yeah. sovereignty, extinguishing sovereignty. These yeah. issues don't happen in a vacuum and, you know, this idea of asphyxiation, taking the breath out of people, um, you know, that's just such a significant point to what's happening with death in custody. Why is It's it all interconnected, isn't it? It's all interconnected, yeah. You can't really separate it. Um, looking at, you know, ideas of intersectionality. You can't separate race from class and gender and other issues, you know. Um, like I was just listening to Belinda and yeah. shout out to the family of Tanya Day, you know. You can't separate what's happening in wider, wider Australia towards Aboriginal women, the most incarcerated people in the world, in Australia. And yet... There you go with people not taking responsibility and there's no accountability. But that's what we have to keep pushing for. Um, so, yeah, you can't separate out the issues when it comes to these kinds of issues. I'm glad you were able to listen to some of Belinda's interview, actually. I'd strongly recommend that you listen to it when the podcast comes out. Yeah, I would love to. I think everybody needs to kind of seize this moment of what's really happening and take a step back and start educating each other as well and start sharing the stories even more so, not only on media but with our own families and community um, because I think that from me just sitting back and watching, this is a really different time. And, like, you know, I'm only 28, so I'm quite young and maybe it's come before me again, but I just feel like something is changing um, and it's kind of we're in this preparation time in many, many ways. What do you mean changing? Anyway. What, what do you think is changing? Well, you know, in 2016 with my own brother's death in custody and the protests that followed even with public discourse, um, we were the first in Australia to hold an Aboriginal death in custody Black Lives Matter rally. And yep. in that time we brought together numerous families like Miss Juice's family, um, like Dylan Voller's family, because Dylan Voller was incarcerated at the time as well. Yes. Um, and, you know, we really looked at state-sanctioned brutality and violence by Australian police and corrections on the whole and linked that to global cases. And in that time, on that same day, in solidarity with us and us in solidarity with other groups around America, 40 different communities actually read out our statements about 
Black Lives Matter in Australia for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people particularly. And so at our protest, though, we had about for Adelaide 500, I would say, showed up that day, which is huge here, huge, massive. Um, I think we had about a, oh, maybe 700 in Melbourne because I flew there the next day to do that rally, um, and it was raining. You know, so it was terrible weather. We took, we had it in, inside of um that hall, what's the union the union place? I can't remember. I'm sorry. It's like so yep. prominent. The union, yep. Trade trade hall. There you go. That's right. Trade um, hall. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> and then I went to Sydney the weekend after that, and we went down um to the west, and we had two rallies there, um, and they pulled about I would say 150. At one of them, and I think about reported 200 at the other. Now, come to this this year, yeah, and what we've just seen happen with hundreds of thousands of people marching right across Australia for black lives. Right there, I guess, that's a big change. But I think more publicly, um, people are talking about it on the news, people are writing about it. You know, people are largely exploiting the black death and custody movement, I think, at the moment for their own gain. But in saying really? that... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, when you've got <laughs> just various, like, policing organisations as well that are trying to oh, come yes. out and say that they support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, that's exploitation when, in fact, behind the scenes, again, just with South Australia particularly, we just hired hundreds of new police, yeah? So that's oh, not yes. moving towards abolition. That's moving against abolition in many ways, I think. Um, yes. But in saying that, the fact is, is that means that it's in the public discourse and that means that people are talking about it, which means that people are being educated on it, right? And that's a great place to start. I think Australia has such a long history of sweeping things under the national rug. Um, and when they're exposed... I think that that's always a good thing. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you, you know, you've touched on something really important here, and that is that there is a lot of manipulation um, at the moment with not just policing organisations, but also a lot of the, the fascism and the right wing rising at the moment. And Absolutely. this stuff happens when there's economic um, oppression. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously COVID-19 has a lot to do with that. Um, but, yeah, the rise of the right-wing white supremacists, you know, I've spoken, I think, to you before. We've got a Nazi youth group here in the Adelaide Hills that have been active on and off, um, you know, just public displays of swastikas, and they're not big at all. They're not, you know, achieving much. But, you know, it, it keeps going. It keeps rising during these times. So that says to me that we are doing something, hey? We are uh, oh, making that's right. the fact that we have people who are being, you know, affected by our actions and our positive behaviours towards supporting communities. Um, so, yeah, that's always going to be a thing. But, yeah, we've just got to, I think, watch out for when we are thinking about abolition, when we are thinking about, about Black Lives Matter, that absolutely is not about incorporating police into movements. It's not about, you know, reconsidering and redefining how we um, do justice inside prisons. You know, I'm definitely not advocating. I don't think we all, anybody should be advocating for 
prison reform, but this is oh. absolutely a time to get it right and to think abolition. And so, yeah, some of it, I think, is being co-opted. Um, but there's, you know, we've just got to watch the space at the moment, I think. We're doing our best. And, yeah, Absolutely, Latoya. And, and, you know, I think Order it's fantastic together. that we've been able to go a step further and talk about that. Now, we're just about finished with our show, but I just wanted to quickly say, Latoya, um, that... Mm-hmm. The coronial inquiry into your brother's death has been delayed by legal challenges from prison guards, as you said, who failed in their bid to have the coroner removed and in claiming privilege against giving evidence. And it's now been delayed again until 2021. That's correct. Yeah, so they lost their bid, um, you know, to have the coroner removed. They still have to show up in court. They still have to give evidence. There is a point where they will have to, um, the lawyers watch what they say, essentially, in layman's terms. They'll have to think about the questions they're posing and and the corrections officers will get, or their lawyers will get the opportunity to intervene on each question to ask if they have to answer it or not on what basis. But they have to build that basis of why they don't have to answer it. So in many ways, they still have to go through another process to be able to not speak Um, and, you know, our lawyers will be able to handle that when it comes. But yeah, absolutely. Not till 2021. 2021. This is going to be five years since my brother's death till we even get till we even finish the coroner's inquest. And you know, how long after that will the report be? How deplorable. Latoya, let's keep fighting. Um, we've got about a minute left of, of the show. Um, thank you so much for coming on, and let's talk to you very soon. Beautiful. Thank you so much for having me. And again, all respect and solidarity for your work and everybody in Melbourne um, through this time. You take care. Thanks a lot, Latoya. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. And you're back with the Doing Time show. We don't have song for the time for the black fella and white fella song today for Rumpy Band. It's goodbye from Marissa and thank you to all our, both our guests for coming in. Thanks so much. See you next week. <laughs>